So I'm not going to start off a message saying I'm not something. Last, If you were here last week, I started off by saying I'm not a crier, and then um, I think I cried more than I've cried all this year. And uh, so I'm not going to, maybe I should start off, I'm not funny, and we'll, we'll, maybe something funny will happen. Um, not to me, not to me. Uh, but anyway, um, we are in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we have been walking through the Beatitudes for the last several weeks, and we've come to a Beatitude that says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And as I begin thinking about this and praying about this message and, and thinking about what the word meek is, and we're going to look at that here in a moment, um, my mind went to when I was a little kid. And if you have kids, um, then you know the blessing of long car rides are, right? Um, you know the blessing of having them in the back seat. Um, so I have one older brother. He's five years older than me. I always sat on the passenger side in the back seat. My brother always sat behind my dad, um, behind the driver's side. And, and so in the back seat, when you have kids, there is that proverbial border, right? There's that wall, that line you do not cross. I don't know how Jamie did it. They had three kids, and so I think she was like on the line, and so it was just don't cross Jamie. I don't know what it was. She does bite, so don't cross her. Um, but anyway, so there's that line, and as a kid, you know, just my age, um, you didn't have the resources you can have today in a car ride. You really had to use your imagination. You had to play the ABC game. You had to like say, oh, there's a red car, there's a red car, there's a red car, uh, or just stare out the window. And so one thing I would do to kind of pass time is I was allowed to bring some toys, um, but they couldn't be anything big. So I always would grab about, you know, two to four GI Joes, um, and they would be my action figures, and we would have this little battle on my side of the back seat. The problem was when it's a long car ride, you know, the good guys just continue to win and they need a bigger adversary. And so I'd always notice that the middle seat where no one was supposed to go, no man's land, there was the belt buckle. And it was the belt buckle that looked like the, a serpent or a snake head. Y'all remember that? It wasn't like one that went across. It was like a really long one you had to put across your, your waist. And so I looked at that, but I understood this. It was on my brother's side. And so the G.I. Joes had to go on a covert operation to get to the snake and bring him back over so we could have this battle. Of course, I'd always get found out. My brother would like, oh, he's on my side, and then he'd hit me and things like that. Um, and so I bring that up to share of my own children and the blessedness it is to go on car rides with my own children. Uh, the last long ride we did was last week, and we went up to Chillicothe, Missouri. My, my parents just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary this month, and Jamie's parents also celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary this month, like a week apart from another. So that, that's a blessing that we have in our life. And as we went up to celebrate with my parents uh, last week, and they live in Chillicothe, which is, if you didn't have to stop, you could get there in about three and a half hours. Um, but with kids, with dogs and everything, you know, it comes about four. So my kids do not have the problem having to use your imagination. They have, you know, we have a Nintendo Switch, which they can carry with them. I usually put movies on my iPad so they can watch a movie. And, and it makes a three-and-a-half to four-hour car ride very manageable. Um, so as we're going up, we have no fights, no bickering, nothing going on. Abby starts watching her movie. She finishes it. And then there's this known thing when you finish watching your movie, that's the time to switch devices. 
And so they switch devices, and Ethan starts his movie. Well, we get about 30 minutes, 20 minutes to Chillicothe, and the iPad dies. And so Ethan says, do we have the charger? And I said, yes, but it's in the very back of the car in my backpack. And so uh, we're about 20 minutes away, so um, just enjoy the rest of the ride <laughs> looking out the window. And he was fine with that. I'm very proud of you in that moment. Proud father moment, Ethan. Um, so we get there, we celebrate, and then we have to turn around and come back the very next day. Um, well, I charge the iPad up, and so what Ethan does is he gets the iPad first because he's got about 20 minutes left of his movie. He could have finished it if the iPad battery did not die. So he gets the iPad, he starts watching his movie. It's right at the final fight scene of his movie. He finishes it, and since it's only been about 20 minutes, he decides he's going to move on to the next movie because it seems fair. This does not go past Abby's notice. I mean, she immediately discovered that is not the movie you started with, and therefore you have crossed that imaginary line in the backseat with electronics because it is now my time. So this argument within 30 minutes of a three and a half to four hour ride begins, and that's not the way you want to start a long car ride. So I have to bring out my dad voice, right? And luckily my dad voice uh, wins the argument of whose turn it is, I, you know, and, and it's fine for Ethan to continue watching this movie. You play with the video games, you play with the dog, you do whatever you're going to do while he finishes watching this next movie. Her argument was this, though, and I think we use it a lot, but that's not fair. She felt it was her turn, he was taking an extra turn, and that's not fair. And I think we use that argument a lot. And it made me begin thinking about fairness and how do we judge what is fair in our life and what is fair in other people's life. And I've come to conclude this. And if you think I'm wrong, that's fine because I don't have a verse to back this part up. But I conclude that we judge things to be fair when they benefit us. So it, if something benefits us, if someone benefits us, then that's a fair situation. For example, if you grew up playing sports or you're currently playing sports right now and you get to play a lot on the team, you probably think that's fair and don't think it's unfair for the other players who go to practice just like you and work out just like you aren't playing. Now, you may be like Elliot and like eight foot six, and so that's why you're playing so much, but. We, we judge things are fair when they benefit us. We, we don't think it's unfair, like in our work, if we were to get a raise, but someone else didn't. You know, when my kids come home and they bring home a good report card or a good score on a test, I think that's fair. I don't consider there may have been another student who has studied harder and maybe even worked harder, but they didn't get the same grade as my, as my child. I think it's fair what they did. And we like it when life is fair. Because when life is fair, hey, life is good. The problem with fairness is when we come to our beatitude this morning, because sometimes life is not fair. And when life is unfair, we want something to happen or someone to right the wrong that we feel we are in. But when it comes to blessed are the meek, we have to understand that it is going to deal with a lot of unfairness in our life. Our verse this morning is Matthew 5, verse 5. And it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
To be blessed and to be meek, heads up, is not going to seem fair. To be blessed and to be meek is going to allow others to benefit in a situation where you feel you're not getting the right or you're not getting what you deserve. But Jesus says, blessed are you when you are meek. And so to understand this, this beatitude, there's a couple things we're going to do this morning. First, we're going to understand what the word meek means, because I don't think it's a word we use all that often in our life. Then we're going to look at a couple examples, three exactly, in Scripture of individuals who were meek, so we can follow their example and see how being meek doesn't always mean fair. We're going to see a passage in Scripture which commands us to be meek, and then we're also going to wrap it up with the benefits of being meek. So if you want to have like a little timetable or an outline, that's kind of how it's going to work. So let's begin with the first question. What is meekness? What is that word? Because I don't think we use it all that often. Did anybody use the word meek this week in a conversation? Have you ever looked at someone and give them a compliment by saying, hey, good job on being meek. I don't think I've ever said that to anybody or even thought that about anybody in my life. And the only reason I came across the word meek numerous times this week is because I've been sitting on this verse for at least a couple weeks. Now, one thing has been said about meekness is meekness is not weakness. And that's true. But the reality is it is not seen that way. Because when we come across as meek, a lot of people may view you as someone who's going to be a pushover. Someone that other people are allowed to take advantage of, which in our society, that would be a sign of weakness. I mean, what do we tell our kids? We don't tell our kids, hey, go to school and be meek today, right? We tell our kids, hey, make sure you stick up for yourself. Make sure no one pushes you around. Make sure if something is happening that you say something to someone. Make sure that people don't take advantage of you. And I think at times this is good advice, but it doesn't always work. Uh, meekness does not mean that we accept bullying. It does not mean that we accept someone else picking on us or belittling us. That's not what meekness means. The most common word in the English language for the word meekness is humble, gentle, courteous, considerate. But even they don't grasp the full meaning of what meekness is. Meekness holds the quality of self-control. It literally means a humble and gentle attitude towards others. And so when you look in Jesus' day, the idea of meekness meant mild and soft, which in Jesus' day was not a high quality to have. And I don't think we would see it as a high quality to have even in our day to day. But meekness does not insist on our rights. The meek are not weak. Instead, they are submissive to God's authority and rule. If you want to think of meekness in, in a great way to define it, meekness is a reserved strength, meaning you have the ability to do something. You may even have the right to do something, but you don't. You hold back. You have a reserved strength. You could retaliate. And you, will, you may not be wrong in retaliating. There may even be people in your life who say, hey, that's what you should have done. But to be meek means I'm going to not insist on my own rights. I'm going to not insist on putting someone in their place. I'm going to reserve my strength. And so as we live in this culture where everything is, is countercultural 
to meekness. Because in our culture today, everything is focused on self. People are focused on getting their own ways. If something doesn't go the way people think it should go, what do they do? They speak out about it. They put it on Facebook. You know, we don't meet at the flagpole anymore and argue out disputes. We put things on Facebook and we blast people on social media because we think we can get away with it. But that's not meekness. But that's what our culture wants to do. Is anybody else around my age and glad that Facebook was not around when you were a kid? Amen. I mean, the closest thing we had to Facebook was a disposable camera, right? Right? I mean, that's the closest thing you had. And because I know as a child and even as a student, as a college student, I did some pretty stupid things. I said some pretty stupid things. I believed some pretty stupid things. And in our culture today, guess what? That's not allowed. You're not allowed to make a mistake. And so we're going to call that out and we're going to try to cancel that. Well, that's not a meek approach. Because meekness allows us to grant grace. The opposite of being meek is to be entitled. And an entitled life cannot grant grace. Because an entitled life, it's all about me. It's all about what I believe. It's all about what I say. It's all about my perspective. And so when we say blessed are the meek, we're saying blessed are we who are meek because we can grant grace even to those we don't agree with. We can grant grace and show them love. And so what meekness does, unlike our other two Beatitudes, is meekness begins inwardly, but then it manifests outwardly in our relationships with people. But it begins inwardly because meekness is based upon our relationship with God and understanding who God is. The meek lifestyle deals with how we treat people and how we respond to people. And so one definition of meekness is great humility and a gentle spirit. In the Old Testament, meekness is almost always associated with the poor and needy, those who are desperate and reliant upon someone else for aid. It deals with someone who is subject to someone else's authority. This is what is to be meek. We already know we're poor in spirit. We already know that we're reliant upon God. We're desperate for God to do what only he can do. As God's people, we should know that we are subject to God's authority. And so our meekness... And our meek attitude is a direct reflection of our understanding and relation to God. We will only be meek when we know that we belong to God and he, in fact, controls all things. We are servants to his rule and authority. We live underneath his sovereignty, which means he is over all things. But our world preaches a different message. Because we're told and we are to know God is in charge. Amen? He's in charge. He's in control. Nothing surprises him. Nothing is taking him off his, his holiness and righteousness. But our society says we should take charge. Take the bull by the horn. Do something about your situation. Take care of yourself. And so this is the battle of meek. So we're going to look at three examples. The first one is of Moses. And in Numbers chapter 12, we're told in verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on face of the earth. And so here, let's get some context of what's going on here in Numbers chapter 12. So Numbers chapter 12, Moses is the leader of the Israelite people. He has been ordained, commissioned by God to do that. He also has some help. Joshua is there, though not in this particular passage. 
Aaron is there. Aaron was to be commissioned by God to be Moses' microphone when Moses goes to Egypt. He's going to speak the words that God says to Moses to Pharaoh so Pharaoh knows what's going to happen and what to prepare for and to let God's people go. There's another individual named Miriam. Miriam is Moses' older sister. Now, I do not have an older sister. I have an older sister-in-law, so I don't know the dynamics of having an older sister. But they're in this situation in Numbers chapter 12. God's people have come across the Red Sea. God has delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He has redeemed them. He has declared that he is their God and they are to be his people. He has given them the law. He has met with them on Mount Sinai. He has provided water from rocks. He has provided quail from heaven. He has given them all things so they can be uh, productive and, and, and good in the land that he is taking them to. And as they're journeying, they're wandering in the desert at this moment because they've been rebelling against God from the get-go, right? I mean, if you know the story of Israel, it did not take but a week before that they get out of freedom. They cross the Red Sea. They praise God, you know, kumbaya, my Lord, you saved us. And then, ah, it's hot here. Thirsty and I'm hungry and it'd probably be best we go back to Egypt. This is what God's people did. Not much different from us sometimes, right? One moment we're on the mountain with God, you are awesome, you're good, you're great. We sing of your goodness and your holiness and your righteousness. You're our great defender. And then the next moment, man, car broke down. Well, Moses is leading a people of complainers. So much to the point that at times God is ready just to hit the reset button. He actually tells Moses one time, I'm just going to be done with these people. I'm going to take you, Moses, and your descendants, and you're going to be the covenantal people. But Moses intercedes. He says, no, God, if you do that, then all the people around us will mock you because of your people and what you've done to them. And they need to know that you're God and you're holy and you're great. So God relents. Well, Numbers chapter 12, Moses has been meeting with God. He's got this nice little place called the Tent of Meeting. He gets to go and have one-on-one conversations with God. It's pretty cool. He comes out, his face is glowing. It freaks everybody out, so he's got to cover it up. But he's been having this intimate relationship with God. In Numbers chapter 12, Aaron, Aaron, the priest, he's been commissioned to be the priest of God's people, to offer the sacrifices, to go in the place of God's people and offer these sacrifices so they can be in relationship with God. Aaron and Miriam, Moses' sister, so his right-hand man and his blood relation come and complain to Moses. And they say, Moses, it is not fair that you get to speak on our behalf because you speak with God, because you know what? We hear from God too, Moses. And so they're mad. They believe life is not fair and they feel entitled because of this. Moses has an intimate relationship with God that they do not. Is that Moses' fault? No. But that's what culture will preach us, is that we look at what someone else has And we say, well, that's not fair. Well, meekness calls us to do the the alternative. Moses doesn't say much at all to their complaint. And they weren't speaking lies. They had heard from God directly. But they also had heard that God said, Moses is the leader. Moses is the one I'm going to communicate with. Moses is the one that is going to tell you where to go, when to go, and how to go. Moses is the one I have given that responsibility to. And so they weren't necessarily mad at Moses. Who were they mad at? 
God. They were mad at what God had spoken. They were mad at God's authority. And so they go against Moses and try to get this revolt. Meekness understands what we have or don't have is because it is what God has willed. Meekness understands that I don't have certain things, and you might. And even though I may like those things, I don't have them because God has not willed that in my life. And sometimes we don't like that idea, but God is sovereign. He is over all things. He is the only one who opens and closes doors. And so we may work hard, we may save up, we may spend hard, but we have what we have because God is the giver of all good things. He is the giver of all gifts. And so when I am meek, I don't look at what Mr. Edwards has and complain about that to him or someone else because that's the way we do it in our society, and we don't complain to their face. We do it behind their back. What I understand is God has blessed Mr. Edwards in that way, and meekness allows me to see how God has blessed me in my way because he understands that everything comes from him. The conclusion of Numbers 12 is God comes in and fights Moses' battle, and this is why Moses doesn't say a thing because he knows that God what God has already said, what God has already commissioned, what God's will is in this situation. So he lets God come and fight his, his battle. So God shows up. He gives Miriam leprosy, which is why we should be meek, right? We don't want that. And he puts the fear of God in Aaron so that Aaron it falls down on his knees and prostrates himself because he understands that God is holy and he has now assaulted God, not Moses. Meekness gives us the eyes to see who is actually in control over all things, even the things that we deem unfair. The second example I want to look at comes from the life of David. And the example I want to look at is one of my most favorite examples of David's meekness. Now, David has several examples of meekness in Scripture, but in 1 Samuel chapter 24, it's one of my most favorite stories because it reminds me that God has a sense of humor. So if you don't know much about David and Saul, because that's what this story is about. So Saul is currently king, even though David has been anointed king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. But Saul isn't going to just step aside. And so Saul, who is currently king, sees David as a threat. He is a threat to his reign as king. He is a threat to his son Jonathan's future reign as king. And Saul has heard the people praise David that the people love David more than they love Saul. And they praise David's achievements more than they praise Saul's achievements. So this makes Saul so mad, so furious. His only thing that he can do is, I got to kill David. I got to get rid of him. He's a threat to me. So Saul gathers his army. David gets with his faithful soldiers, and they go on the run, and Saul goes on the chase. And so a lot of First Samuels, they're just kind of running around. And, well, David and his men hear that Saul's getting closer. And so they decide they're going to go hide in a cave. And this brings us to First Samuel chapter 24. So they're hiding in a cave. And Saul and his army decide that they are tired. So they're going to set up camp right outside the cave where David and his men are. But they don't know David's there. 
And so as the army is setting up camp, well, Saul's king, so he doesn't have to set up camp. But what he does need to do, because it must have been a long ride, he needs to go to the bathroom. I mean, you cannot make this up. The Bible says in 24 verse 3 that Saul went into the cave where David and his men was hiding, and I quote from Scripture, to relieve himself. That's a Bible verse, people. So Saul going into the cave. He wants to have privacy to go to the bathroom. And while Saul is doing his thing, well, David's men are watching, which is awkward, right? That's just awkward. But they see what Saul is doing. They see, hey, you know what? He's not really focused on us at the moment. He's not trying to kill us at the moment. He's got other things on his mind. So this is a great opportunity for us to make life fair. We can be rid of Saul. David, who is supposed to be king, will take his place. And that's the way God wants it. We will make it happen. We will make life fair. And so they go tell David, hey, David, you're never going to believe it. Saul is up front. He's kind of going to the bathroom. But that's beyond the point. He's up there. He doesn't know we're here. We can take him out. We can end this right now. And so David, being curious, he goes up and he sneaks up on Saul. Hopefully not downhill, right? Ha, ha, ha. And he goes to cut a piece of Saul's robe off. And as soon as he cuts his robe, he has guilt come over him. He feels bad just for cutting the robe of Saul. So he goes back to his men. He knows the opportunity he has. And he tells his men, I'm not going to kill Saul, and you're not going to touch him. That's God's anointed. And until God removes Saul, he's king. Well, Saul finishes up his thing. David eventually comes out of the cave while Saul's out there, and he holds up his robe and lets Saul know, hey, I had every opportunity to end this. Every opportunity to make this fair in my life. But because God has anointed you, Saul, I still see you as king and I will respect that. And it says that David, even though Saul was out to kill him, David bowed down before his enemy. He prostrated himself. And he showed adoration, not just to Saul, but to God's authority that was still over Saul. And this causes Saul to weep, and he eventually pleads for David. He says, David, I understand you're going to be king. He, Saul knew it in his mind and his heart that this was going to happen, even though he was trying to stop it. He says, I understand you're going to be king, and when you are king, please, please, please do not kill my descendants. Do not kill my offspring. See, in these days when a new king from a new family would come into power, that's the first thing he would do, eliminate any opposition. But David, in his meekness, granted Saul grace, and he gave him a promise. And in David's meekness, he was able to speak truth into Saul's heart. He tells Saul that the, the people who have your ear, the people who are telling you these things about me, are lying to you. They're leading you astray. As you can see right here, I had every opportunity to end you, but Saul, I am not against you. I see God's authority over your life. You are his king. 
and I'm going to live under that authority. And so David's meekness allowed to give Saul an understanding of truth and allowed David to give Saul grace, but not just to Saul, but to every offspring of Saul after he would eventually die. And so we start with Moses and David because these are two men just like us, two individuals like us. These are sinful individuals, right? They wrestled with sin. Look in Scripture, Moses. I mean, God calls him. He specifically heard the voice of God speaking from a bush to go and bring my people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And what does Moses do? Yeah, sign me up, God. What does he do? He does what we do. Well, let me pray about that. He gave, Moses, he gave God excuses on why he couldn't go. Why he couldn't do that. He was a reluctant follower, but then he submitted to God. We know when we look through Scripture, Moses had anger issues. He just mad at God at some times. He just mad at his people sometimes that he's leading. He had anger issues that he would just kind of lash out. David, where do we start? He had multiple wives, not something God told him to do. He has sex with one woman who was married, got, gets her pregnant. So in order to cover that up, he has him murdered. He is a poor father figure. And I say that, you know, I, I, I'm not being private. I think I'm a better father than David was. Because as far as I know, my oldest son is not trying to overthrow me and kill me. But if he grows out long hair and I die suddenly, then, you know, look at Ethan. That's, but David's children turned on him. So these are two sinful individuals that we can learn from, but they're not the measuring rod. They reveal even though we wrestle with sin, even though we wrestle with our culture, even though we wrestle with things not being fair, we can still be blessed and be meek. So the measuring rod is Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was heckled. He was told to save himself. He was poked fun of. He was told, why don't you call down the angels? Why don't you call down the prophets and come off the cross and reveal that you are in fact the Messiah, in fact the Savior? But Jesus didn't retaliate. Instead, Jesus leading up to this tells us to come to him and learn from him because he is gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. The word gentle in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 is the same word in the Greek that we get the word meek. So Jesus says, imitate me, come to me, learn from me so you can be meek. And the gospel is good news because it allows us and blesses us to be meek. You read through the gospels, Jesus preached major, major, the majority of time to Jewish people because he was the Jewish Messiah. But how did they respond to him? Did they accept his message? Did they accept what he was saying, the truth he presented? The religious leaders very shortly into Jesus' ministry wanted to kill him. The Jewish population as a whole saw Jesus more as a circus and a sideshow rather than a savior. Show us more miracles. Hey, do more stuff. 
And when Jesus preached to them and called them to repent and called them to understand who God was, they continually refused to do it. But what does Jesus do? He does not call down fire and brimstone from heaven, even though he had the authority to do it. He was God in the flesh, even though two of his own disciples, the sons of thunder, said, hey, Jesus, since you're not going to do it, you want us to call down fire from heaven and just wipe these, these treacherous people, these unrighteous, wicked people out? What does Jesus do? He weeps for them. He presents them with truth that they want nothing to do with, and instead of getting mad about it, instead of trying to shove it down their throat, he weeps over them. You think about how we get prideful in ourselves and and how we, we think so highly of ourselves. You know who could have had a big ego? Jesus. He was God in the flesh. The dude walked on water. Now, I've tried to do that. I mean, who hasn't as a kid tried to run across the pool and just failed miserably? Jesus did it, and it wasn't a a magic show. He fed thousands with scraps of food. He calmed the storm. He slept in the midst of a storm on a boat. He cast out demons. Yet Jesus wasn't egotistical. He wasn't prideful. He didn't seek to exalt himself, but continued to call glory to the Father and exalt him. He continually pointed people to God because he knew they needed to understand God before they can understand him as their Savior. Charles Spurgeon once preached that we must be meek and lowly in heart, otherwise we will be totally unfit to be taught by Christ. Empty vessels may be filled, but vessels that are full already can receive no more. The man who knows his own emptiness can receive abundance of knowledge and wisdom and grace from Christ, but he who glories in himself is not in a fit condition to receive anything from God. We can't be meek if we're full of ourselves. Now, if you're one of those people who write notes in your Bible, you may feel weird about writing that particular note, but it's truth. We cannot have a meek heart and a meek attitude towards people if we are full of ourselves. And if we're full of ourselves, we think it's all about us and it's all about our way and all about what we want, then we can't live in God's blessing. Blessed are the meek. And Scripture gives us perfect examples of the meekness of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this in mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born of the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. First Peter, we find another example in chapter 2, verse 22. He says, he, being Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that just gives us a great picture of the cross. When Jesus is on the cross looking completely helpless, he could have called it off like that. He could have ended it. He could have used his power and authority that he had and said, you know what? It's not worth it. 
They're never fully going to understand this sacrifice. They're never fully understand the cost and the price that I'm paying. But he fully humbled himself and showed his meekness. He had a reserved strength. And what he could have ended, he went through because he knew that was God's will. Meekness does not mean life will be fair, but it is living the conviction that God will bring justice. And so in meekness, we can't have pride because pride is the belief in self and reliance rather than God. So when we're meek, we're seeking, we're listening, we're accepting God's rule and his authority and the things in our life even when they're not fair, even when they're not fun. We submit because we know God is good and what is happening is because he allows it to happen and therefore it is for our good. To live out meekness is to be in God's mission. We cannot fulfill the mission of God as individuals or as a church unless we are meek. Because if we are not meek, then we're going to rely upon our own strength, our own wisdom, and our own resources. But here's the command from Scripture. It comes from Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. It says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's our identity that God has given us. It says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. All right, so what is the result? What is the result of having a meek life, right? All right, so Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Well, that makes this decision a lot easier, right? Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. No, thank you. (laughs) We live here. Is this what you want? I mean, that makes me look at that like, uh, that reminds me of like medical commercials that they're out there. You know, those allergy commercials that come out. Like, well, if you take this one pill, all your allergies will go away. And then as the music and the cartoon character dances in the fields, the little subtle voice that speaks really fast and really softly underneath. But this pill will give you excessive diarrhea. It will make your eyes bleed. It will make you not be able to go out in public. And you'll lose all ability to sleep. And Ethan and I hear those commercials. We're like, why would you, why would you? I'll live with allergies. (laughs) And so I read this beatitude and I'm thinking, that's, you know, poor in spirit, get the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn, find comfort in the Father's side. Those who are meek, the earth? Where scripture doesn't say the earth is going to pass away. What? No thanks. But that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's doing is he's pulling from an Old Testament passage. We have to keep in mind, Jesus' audience was Jewish, so they would have been familiar with what Jesus is saying in this moment and the passage that he's pulling from. In particular, the passage that Jesus is pulling from comes from the book of Psalms, and it speaks of the promised land. It's Psalms 3711, if you want to put a notation there. The psalm says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And the land is speaking of the promised land. And what the promised land represented, what Jesus is saying here and what about the earth, is the representation of God's presence, provision, protection, blessing, and rule. So when we are meek, we possess the presence, the provision, protection, and blessing of God because we are living under God's rule and reign. That's what Jesus is saying. They shall inherit the earth. 
You will inherit God's presence in your life when you are meek. When you are meek, you'll be blessed because you will inherit God's provision over your life. You will inherit God's protection in your life. You will be given God's blessing as you live under his rule. And it also says in Psalm 37, 11, that you will have delight as you live in abundant peace. Sign me up for that. That sounds good. Because I look at the world and I don't see that at all. Why? Because it's all about them. It's all about getting their way. It's me, me, me. And if I don't like that, I'm going to speak up about it. And I'm going to cancel that. There's no peace. Because to be meek is the source of peace. If we're meek, we're blessed. We are given delight. We live in delight. And we're given abundant peace. Who wants that? Wake the person next to you. We all should want that. <laughs> but the Bible goes on to say this. When we're meek, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Not joy remembering what God did back in the good old days or what God did when I, was, when I first came to him. It says you will receive fresh joy in the Lord when you're meek. The Bible says in our meekness, it is going to enable us to receive the implanted word of God which will be able to save our souls. Meaning if we are not meek and living out a meek life, we're not going to accept God's word. Because it's not authoritative over us. And therefore, we won't be able to understand salvation or even see salvation unless we humble ourselves and realize this isn't about me. It's about him and his authority and his reign and his word and his will. And so even though I could do something, even though I may want to do something, I'm going to surrender to that. The Bible says in James chapter 3 that if we're meek, we will be wise and understanding and that a meek individual's works will reveal their wisdom. Meekness is rooted in one's trust and faith in God, his ultimate rule, and his authority. And so when we choose to live a meek life, that doesn't mean we are pushovers. That doesn't mean we're taken advantage of. That means we understand that sometimes life is not going to be fair, but God is good in this. He is blessing me in this even though I don't see it and may not even feel it. But I'm going to surrender to his word and his will. And the Bible says when we do that, we reveal God's wisdom and authority to a world that needs to see it. We're blessed because we live in the promise and the presence of God. And so our question for us this morning is, how is our meekness? How willing are we to seek, listen, accept, and apply God's word to our life? How willing are we to bow down to his rule and his will? That doesn't mean it's going to be fair. That doesn't mean it's always going to go your way. That doesn't mean other people aren't going to benefit maybe from your pain and your struggle. But it does come with a promise. It will be good. It will be delightful and you will have abundant peace in the midst of it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
You know, life isn't fair. Would you all agree with that? We, we've all said it at one point in time. We probably thought it. <laughs> and that's true. It's a true statement. Life is not fair. And the greatest example of life not being fair is found in Jesus Christ. So if you don't know this, God created you to be in a relationship with, you, with him. But you have sin and rebellion in your life, which is keeping you from that relationship. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and it says that all people have sinned. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, instead of God making us take our blame and our punishment, what God did is he did something that was not fair. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take our punishment, to take our blame, and to pay our payment. And that payment was death. So Jesus Christ died on a cross in our place because we're sinners and we can't work our way back to God. We can't be good enough. And God knows that. And the Bible says that Jesus died as our atoning sacrifice. That means he was our substitute. He was our replacement. And he paid it in full. And the Bible says when we come to this place and understand, you know what, life is not fair, but it's not fair that God had to die for me for my mistakes, even though he did. And if you believe that to be true in your heart, the Bible says you then confess it with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord because you believe he died for you and he rose again. And he paid your sins in full. And the Bible says when you do that, you're given eternal life. And here's the thing, it's not because of anything we've done to deserve it. It's just not fair. But it's good. And it's from a God who loves you deeply. And so if you're here this morning and you need to accept God's gift, I'm going to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate together. But maybe you're here, and I'm sure there are some people here, you're going through something that is not fair. <laughs> And God is bringing you to a place like, okay, how can I be meek in this situation and show God's goodness? I'm going to ask Nick to come up and lead us. I think Bridget's going to join him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, thank you that you have completely redeemed us if we have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to accept this incredible gift, let them know that in their heart and let their feet follow what their heart is telling them to come down the aisle and confess you as Lord and Savior of their life and to find forgiveness and eternal life. For we as your people, Lord, you know we go through hard things. We look in your word and your people do that. They go through hard things. So give us a heart of meekness to be able to surrender and trust your will in all circumstances. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. We ask this time be about your kingdom coming and your will being done in each and every life. And praise on the name of Jesus. Amen.